So if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know we've been on this uh, kind of crazy series. Um, and it's, it's originating from a lot of revelations from this man named Darren Hufford. And I keep on wanting you know, to reaffirm just the, the power that took place in my belief systems from somebody who dared to offend what I believed. I shared last week about how offended I was at some of the things I was reading and understanding. And, and it, it came to me that if... if if I'm not available to have my belief systems change, then I will live my entire life believing lies. And I can attend church, and I can read the Bible, I can memorize scripture, but if I have the wrong person, if I have the wrong persona speaking to me, I'm listening to the wrong person. And I used to be somebody of such great discipline that would, you know, I'd have to read a certain number of chapters, I'd have to memorize a number of, certain of, of verses, and, and God just really took me, he's like, how about we just get back to understanding, is the real me the one that you believe? Could it be that I have spent 20 some years believing things about God that he never said, nor were interpreted correctly, or, or, or even accurate? And so I've been in this journey for several years, and I feel like that for the first time through a lot of these revelations, I finally am free to read the scriptures and to be impacted the way that God intended them. Because when we have the wrong mindset, when we have the wrong ideas, when we believe the lies of, of, of a source, then it colors everything that comes to us if we believe the lies of where it's originating from. Does that make sense? And so the goal here is to go systematically through the persona of God and just say, what are the things that we believe that aren't consistent with his character? And tonight is that God is not rude. And you know, we, we understand that uh, everything about God's persona and everything about his nature from 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love and so we can understand everything about him by understanding 1 Corinthians 13, which says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude. Now rudeness seems pretty self-explanatory, right? I mean, it kind of seems like, man, that should be lumped into kindness. It seems like it should have been back there, but meanness and rudeness are two different things. And our society has become very entertained by this rude factor. And it's, 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 it's amazing how the TV shows we watch, it's amazing that the people we find the most entertaining, they typically are the most rude people. Like we like them because they say it how it is, you know. We were watching a, a show the other night and this woman just like ripping apart, you know, this, this guy. And we're like, yeah, that's great. I'm like, well, that's, that's not nice, you know. Like we just, we, we get in the habit of being attracted to personalities that are shock value personalities, right? People who constantly interrupt, people who have routine practice for, you know, sound a certain way that becomes their persona. No wonder we like the Jersey Shore and things like that because we like that shock, tell it how it is, raw nature. And we've, uh, we've put that persona on God in many ways, I believe. Because we think that a tough God who speaks down to us helps us follow rules, it helps us mo be motivated to holiness or righteousness. And I just wanna call out the, the fact that God is not rude. That while we have the different ways in which we can connect with God, there's, there's an essence to love not being rude and God not being rude that will totally change the way we think about it. And when we understand it, that, that God isn't glorified by having him being this my way or the highway mentality. But it comes into forms where we, we enjoy seeing jerks get what they deserve, right? I mean, sometimes we're like, yeah, get them, God, get them, you know? And, and, and we, we want people to get put in their place on behalf of God. And we've heard sermons about how God exposes sin in somebody's life very publicly and we're like, amen for bringing it. And I just don't buy it anymore. Amen. 
Have you ever been in a heated discussion? And then when you're like trying to like get to the root of like, how do we end up here? And the person tells you what they heard from you and they tell you in this, the most obnoxious, rude, condescending tone. It's like the most violating feeling to be like, I didn't say that. I didn't say those words. I didn't say it like that. I mean, it's this really like disturbing feeling to have someone hear something you didn't say. And it's, it's, rudeness has the power to say things that the words aren't saying. And so many of us in, in Christianity have taken the words of the Bible and we've interpreted to say things as really not saying. And a rude person, the thing I know about a rude person is that the rudeness becomes their identity. That if you have a rude person that that's what they're known for, that's what the shock value, that's the entertainment value, that becomes their persona that we always identify with them. It's kind of like having a funny person who always has to be funny. You're like, it's not funny anymore. Like, can I just be you and like we talk as normal people? And rude people have a hard time from coming down from being rude. And so if we have adopted the attributes of a rude God, we have a hard time distinguishing him because the traits are so, are so pronounced. So I'm going to give you tonight four reasons why God is not rude. Four truths that we need to grab onto. If we really are here for intimacy, if we're really here to connect with the authentic heart of God, we have to understand these. And the first one is God is not rude because God's tone is always love. God's tone in the word is always love. Today, I think so many of the things that grieve God's heart are when we read his love letter, the Bible, and we read it with a tone of judgment and a tone of anger. I think it's an injustice to God when we take the words of the Bible and disregard the whole heart that originated behind it. We'll read words of the Bible through the tone we hear of him in our head, and, and, and worse, we'll, we'll share that tone with others, too. And that's the, the hard thing is we learn, we, we share, and sometimes we share with people who are learning themselves or maybe are, are younger in the faith. And what we can do is we can easily replicate wrong patterns, wrong behaviors, wrong ideas, wrong perceptions about God really early on. And, and we, we share that hurtful tone with people. I, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for Facebook debates. I always promise myself I'm not going to get in them, and I always get in them. And um, this guy, he's like, he posted this quote, like the Bible, well, he posted on something I posted. And he's like, the Bible makes you sad before it makes you better. I'm like, what translation are you reading? The new condescending version? Like, I don't know what, when we have this mentality that we go to the Bible because it makes us sad and it's a self-deprecating, self-torture, this, this mentality that we need to get our brains breathed out in guilt and shame before we can fully understand God, I just don't buy it anymore. And if you have that mentality, of course you're gonna read the Bible through that entire tone. You're gonna read everything and have it verify what you think. The funny thing is that in biblical times, you had to have kings, and you know, they didn't have email, they didn't have Skype, they didn't have FaceTime, they didn't have all those different things, they didn't have singing telegrams, you know, they didn't have any of that stuff. So if a king wanted to communicate with another king, he would have a messenger, and this messenger was actually more of an actor than he was like a delivery guy. And the reason is because the king would bring him forward and he would share his emotion. If he was angry, he'd pound his fists on a table, he would raise his voice, he would throw things, and the messenger's job was to emulate it perfectly. So the messenger would go to the other king and go in there and start banging on tables and throwing things and he would represent the exact tone and emotion of the other king. 
But we understand that when the wrong tone is given, it doesn't matter if the words are right. That tone and words have to be in agreement with each other. Any of you guys have like a dog? I saw a dog here tonight, you know. Dogs are hilarious. <clears throat> that as long as you have the right tone, the dog thinks that you are amazing. You know, you could be giving the dog curses like, I hope you die, I hope you, you know, like, and, and the dog is just like, like, you know, so happy. You know, it doesn't matter. And, and, and likewise, you can give him like a terrible, harsh tone. I love you so much, so, so, so much. And the dog isn't a cower. And we need to understand that when we read the Bible, the tone and the words have to align. That's why the Bible says, speak the truth in love. We have a tendency with Christians to, we do a really good job of speaking the truth. Amen? Well, I gave him the truth, you know, and it's like a sledgehammer. It's the truth. It's like, when are the truth and love? Like, we can look at the other attributes of love and, and was truth delivered in that manner? I, I, I don't know. Just, just saying. But I, it's, it's no wonder. We've talked about how Christianity is in decline and so many Christians are hiding. Could it be that they have been giving loving words in an angry voice? Could it be so many Christians have heard Jesus loves you, but the tone that they've received is Jesus is waiting to abandon you. That Jesus is, is disappointed in you. And the problem is that we hear whatever tone we expect to hear whenever we read the Bible. And rudeness is attracted to our flesh, but it actually makes our heart cringe. So I ask you tonight, what kind of tone is God's voice in your life? When you ask yourself, what am I receiving? What am I hearing when I engage with God, whether in prayer or in the word? What does it sound like? Does it sound like a boss? Does it sound like a manager? Does someone who's annoyed by you? Does it sound like someone that maybe sounds like your earthly father, which could be good or bad? Is it void of all emotion and personality? Or is it filled with adoration? Is it filled with delight? Is it filled with desire? Number two, is God is not rude because he sees you as complete. There is a meaning to rudeness that, that unlocks brand new significance to this word. And beyond a rude tone, to be rude implies something completely revolutionary about God's heart for us. And let's just look at what the definition of rude is from the dictionary. It says, being in a rude, rough, unfinished condition, exhibiting a marked lack of skill or precision in work, it says, characterized by roughness, unpolished, raw, lacking delicacy or refinement, coarse, uninformed or unformed by taste or skill, not nicely finished, not smooth or polished. There's one common denominator in all these definitions. It's the fact that something is unfinished or not complete. Have you ever worked on a project cut like a piece of wood and it's like riddled with splinters, you know? It's like, ow, that, like, that hurts. Like, there's something that's rough. It's like a real good work is actually polished. And the truth is that God does not see you as unfinished. God does not see you as you see yourself. Out of this was the biggest revelation is that we are, have become so used to being self-critical. And we forget that when Ephesians talks about us being seated in heavenly places, present tense. I won't describe how I think that's possible. But it says that right now there is an eternal presence of us with the Father. But we see ourselves according to our current state. But God always addresses us 
being seated with him in heavenly places. He sees the finished work of us. Jesus' final words on the cross, what was it? It is finished. To be unfinished and incomplete actually means to be dissatisfied. It makes perfect sense. No wonder so many people feel that God is dissatisfied with them because they look at themselves as being these unfinished, incomplete works. But if God has your heart, he is completely satisfied. I can't stress this enough. The, the most significant thing whenever we do prayer ministry and I, I lay hands on somebody and I can have like, you know, I can be all worked up and, and the person's like, mm. you know, like they're like, oh, that's cool. But there, there's one consistent phrase that when prayed, I've seen more people lose it. And you know what it is? It's that God is satisfied with you. There's something about that. There's a release when people feel that I'm okay with God, that God delights me, that God is interested, God is okay with me. See, we need to understand that the flesh is dying. Like, if you have a pattern, a pattern with your flesh, it's a bummer. Yeah, we're like, victory's available for us, but if God doesn't have your heart, the flesh doesn't matter because the heart is the only thing that God gets. Your flesh is gonna be down on the ground. We're free to destroy our flesh and to suffer consequences from that that the earth gives us, but God is so much more concerned about your heart. If your flesh is getting in the way of your heart, you you need to rethink about what God's concerned with. God gets no glory with you preserving your flesh and keeping your heart away from him. Philippians 3.9 says this. Everybody should memorize this verse. It says that I am found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Meaning, you have the righteousness of Christ. Biblically truth, you have the righteousness of Christ. When God the Father looks at you, he sees perfection through the Son. But so many of us think that God sees us as ourselves. We, we look at ourselves as unfinished. We look at ourselves as work in progress. And God engages with us in our time frame, but he sees us according to that reality. But God will not treat you as being unfinished or incomplete. He will not send you into wilderness to fix you. That's another thing I've heard other Christians say. How's your walk going? How's your relationship? Oh, God just has me in the wilderness. What does that mean? You know, you're like, can you detail more of that for me? Well, you know, he's just, he's just really working on a lot of things with me. So I'm in this wilderness and I'm like, gosh, darn it. Like, you know, if, if we're Christians in the New Testament, we are already in the promised land. Amen. We, we have, we're so spoiled, right? The very thing that for thousands of years that people looked forward to about God being with us, in us, we have and we take for granted. But people will reference that and it's completely against theology, completely against scripture. The only wilderness that life will provide you is the wilderness that you choose to live in yourself. God will not prevent you from wandering off into the wilderness and saying, well, God has me in the wilderness. He's like, I didn't send you there. What map are you reading? God's like, I've given you promise. I have already equipped you with every single thing that you need. It's in you. When we receive the spirit, we receive all the power, all the fruit of the spirit. It's one word. It's not fruits, love, joy, peace. It's, you don't get like some of them. You get all of them. You get them in all measure. But you know that Israel, right? When God promised the land to Israel, he promised to them and they, re- they received the promise in one day, but they possessed it bit by bit. 
The land was theirs, but they had not yet taken possession of it yet. The same thing is about our flesh and our walk. That we've, we have possessed, uh, sorry, we've received fullness, but we possess it little by little, amen? But God brings all things to completion and leaves nothing unfinished. The reason that you feel that you are unfinished is because we look to the flesh. The spirit is not received in any other, any other version than fullness, right? There's no like diets, Holy Spirit. There's no like free trial, Holy Spirit. It, it, like, it comes in like one package in fullness and glory. Why is that? It's because if God didn't know that he could give the same exact power, the same spirit to a little child as he would to some man who's lived a, a great life and abstained from all the vices of life, if he didn't equally give them power and equally give them presence and equally give them access to his heart, he knew that we as men would try to earn our way to more power. And one of the most disarming things that we can find about the power of God is that all power has already been given to us. It's kind of humiliating to our minds because we want to earn it, we want to climb the ladder. I'm in business, I get it, I love capitalism, I love beating a competitor, I get all of that, but it doesn't apply to the Spirit of God. God is not in competition with anybody. He doesn't have you in competition with anybody. It's hard for me to hear like great revelation from other men and like, gosh, why didn't I think of that, you know? You know, God always like affirms me. He's like, you have all that. It's like, well, why didn't you give it to me first, you know? (laughs) But when he looks at you, he sees the fullness of the spirit, the finished product. There are parts of you like, "Well, well, man, I got tons of, crap going on. Like, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a piece of crud like that has all sorts of bummer things happen in life. I got addictions. I got things. Your spirit is righteous. Your presence is righteous. There's just parts of your flesh that just hasn't gotten the memo yet. Amen? So the next time your flesh fails you, you're like, I got a very important memo for you to receive. Next time, you should do a little bit better. Maybe you should start talking to your flesh like a boss. You know, write it up, you know, I don't know. I'm just saying. <laughs> but a beautiful illustration of this is anybody artistic in this room? They're all shy. Yeah. Oh. I bet there's a lot more than that. You know why there's a lot more than that that didn't raise their hand? It's because somebody was critical of your artistic ability. Anybody else want to raise hands, <laughs> right? <laughs> Here's an amazing thing about artists. An artist will take a blank canvas and the masterpiece is already in their mind. To them, the masterpiece is already completed. The paint just isn't on the canvas yet. So when an artist looks at a project, the canvas, he sees exactly, in his mind, it's a done deal. He just has to apply the paint on it. And the same way is with God. He sees in his mind, he knows, he interacts with the perfect you, but he knows that the unfinished work is still here on earth. But God has not left you unfinished. He has made you perfect forever with one sacrifice. And the third thing, which ties right into this, is God is not rude because God covers you. God covers you. 1 Peter 4.8 says this, above all, be fervent in prayer, I'm sorry, fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. One of the most damaging lies that we believe about God is that he exposes our sin. 
Do you know that Isaiah 43, 25 says God does not have any record or memory of your sin? When you say, God, I sinned, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. All I see is the righteousness of Christ. I've heard that you might have some unredeemed flesh that hasn't got the memo yet, but you know you are righteous. It's biblical truth. But if you still have sin, it's because the masterpiece for you, your flesh is still in progress. But here's the great thing about artists is they're looking at the blank canvas. You know what they'll do? They'll work on it. Like it, it says that it took decades for Michelangelo's David to be completed. But artists do a very specific thing. is when they are working on it and the day is done, they're exhausted. What do they do with the art? They cover it up. Why do they cover it up? Because anybody who comes and looks at the art doesn't have the masterpiece that is in their mind. And if you don't have the masterpiece in your mind, you're going to be critical. You're like, well, that doesn't look good. Like that, you know, you got stuff all missing there. And it's the most discouraging thing to an artist. I'm actually artistic. And there's something about me like that I will do uh, designs for clients. And, and so they don't want to, they want to see like the work in progress, but I never want to show them because I don't believe that they have the vision that I have until I'm ready to show it to them. And so the artist, it's critical that if they're really going to accomplish the masterpiece, they don't dare be uh, demotivated by somebody being critical of their art. It does them no good. And so the same way about all the artists in here. There'd be a lot more artists in here, a lot more creatives if someone wasn't critical of your unfinished piece. But God looks at us the same way. He's going to cover the masterpiece that he's creating in you. He already sees you as the perfect masterpiece deep within his heart, and he will never expose the unfinished details. He'll never say, well, look at this line here. It's, really it's a really bad line. He will never do that. He'll continue to cover you. But so many people are afraid that God is going to take them and expose them and to bring light to their imperfections. Now, I'm not saying that your sin will never get out. Sin has a very nasty habit of exposing itself. But let's be clear, who is the author of sin? Who is the author of shame? Who is the author of guilt? I say it time again that God will not partner with Satan in bringing you shame of your sin in order to bring you to repentance. God gets no glory in us being guilted. Another way to think of it is if, you're, if someone can make you run from hell, that does not mean that you're running to God. It's very easy to make people run from hell. It's another thing to make people actually run to the heart of God. But one thing I've learned is that sin in of itself, it has one attribute. That sin is never fully finished until it produces shame. You know, like you have like the 40 steps of grieving or like those different things, you know. The final step of sin is shame. You know that you are on the other side and the victory of sin when your shame is gone. If you have sin and you have something that you're like dying and you're being riddled because you're fearing the shame, know that God is not gonna shame, he's not gonna expose you. You don't need to worry about him like unveiling the covers and now you get to move on for it or from it. I think God, when we are intimate with his heart, he allows us to bypass a lot of that stuff if we would come to him first. But I just don't think that that God is going to partner with the enemy in shame and guilt at all to bring him glory. It just doesn't make any sense. One of the stories that uh, this guy Darren shares, 
He has a couple daughters. And so they're in a busy lobby. And so he sees his daughter, you know, in like the, the lobby. And so he all of a sudden recognizes like the sheer terror on her face. And he sees like her, her pants like starting to soak through it. And all of a sudden he gets that his daughter has let go of her bladder and she is like in the process of wetting herself. And instantly she starts to like well up in tears and just sheer panic in her mind that she's in the middle of this crowded place and all of a sudden she's about to be humiliated in front of all these people. And so he says he goes and runs and grabs her and ushers her into like the closest exit. And he says, all the while I'm whispering, nobody saw it. I got you. Don't worry. We're going to clean it up. No one saw it. Just you and me, just you and me. And he says like, you know, his suit and his tie was soaking. When we come to God with whatever drama, issue, sin we have, God is not like, oh gosh, like he's not doing that. (laughs) I get it because I got a little daughter and some days like she'll go several days without needing diaper change and it comes in all of its glory and you're like, (laughs) and you're just, you know, fans everywhere. I mean, you're just... But God doesn't do that. He swoops us up. He holds us even tighter and he whispers in our ear, I see you perfect. I see you as a masterpiece. I'm so sorry this is how you feel because our feelings are real. We need to know like the difference between truth and feelings. We'll experience feelings that aren't necessarily truth. Feelings are meant to be felt and that's it. It's like, I feel this way. I don't need to justify what I'm feeling or why, but it is, it is what I feel. If, if we don't actually express what we feel, we're just suppressing it for another day, for another battle. And actually, what I found is we'll come out another way. But when we look at what truth is, we say, I feel this way, but I have to remind myself in my shame, in my guilt, in my struggle, I have the righteousness of Christ. I'm being held close to the Father. God is not trying to teach me a lesson. He's not trying to discipline me through this. He's not trying to humiliate me through this. And we embrace what he's doing in us. God's not gonna shine a light there. It's just not his heart because his heart is not rude. But you know what's something God does shine a light on is you for the purpose of delighting in you. God's not gonna peek open the covers and and show everybody, you know, this this painting that's, you know, halfway finished, but what he is gonna do is gonna take that perfect masterpiece and he's gonna agonize over the perfect alignment on the wall, get the lighting just right, and he's gonna throw an art show. And one of the things I've learned is about When we know that we are close to the intimate heart of God, we feel his delight to be showed off. I'm not talking about bragging. I'm not talking about boasting. I'm not talking about self-sustaining righteousness and and any of that, that stuff. But there is something to be said about actually encountering the feeling that God is so delighting in you. I have a, a little daughter. She's almost 15 months old. And she's got about like 10 words in her vocabulary. And one of my favorite things, and like we rehearse them every day, multiple times a day. One of my favorite things to do is like when somebody comes over, like I want to like rehearse them with her, you know? And then when they get there, I'm like, can you say cocoa? And she's like, cocoa? I was like, can you say cheese? She's like, cheese, you know? And like she'll do these like things. And so when someone comes over, I want to like show her off. I want other people to delight in her. I'm not gonna be like, Scarlet, um, yeah, I mean, she's 15 months. Okay, um, say the alphabet. And she's like, 
cracker, you know? <laughs> I, that would be so unloving. I think sometimes that we have this false humility that wants to de- depress us and suppress the victories of God when actually God loves it when his children shine. Matthew 5.16 says, let your light shine before men so that they may praise your Father in heaven. Christian at large bums me out. Why? I can post on Facebook, Jesus loves you, and somebody on there would be like, well, accept these people, you know, and, and it's just like, wh- these Debbie Downers all the time, like, it's, come on, guys, like, can we not actually, like, be okay that God is in a good mood, like, that's a foreign concept, or that God is delighted in your victory? It's this amazing chronic like illness, I think, in the faith where we are so afraid of any victory we have of us mistakenly getting the glory and mistakenly being in the spotlight. But God says, I made you a masterpiece. Let your light shine before men that they may praise your Father in heaven. The most glorifying thing I think that we can do for God is to show off what he's done in us. When we stand and we basically say, wow, God, you have done amazing things. Let me count the ways. And we don't make it about us. Remember, Paul says, I boast in my weakness. What does that mean? That means that we say, God, this is what you've done. I was a wreck, but you made me whole. I was nervous, but you made me peaceful. Last is, God is not rude because God is in covenant forever. Just let me say that again. Forever. Forever. It's kind of a long time. I think sometimes we look at God as in relationship with us kind of like as we date or maybe like family members, like, well, eventually that family member will get old, they'll die, you know, like it, it, it'll be better later, you know, if we have a difficult relative, you know. And we're kind of like, you just gotta survive this time. Think about this, think about the times that you are most prone to be rude or treat something the worst. You know the worst places are? You're driving on 50, six o'clock, Mother, you're like, I, you know, you're out the window. And I'm always careful because, you know, like, I got to be recognized, you know, <laughs> like move over, cut somebody off. And, you know, it's Dale. It's like, oh, sorry. God bless you, you know. <laughs> I actually drove past Cody the other day and I'm like, I'm swerving towards him, you know. I'm trying to beat him up. But, you know, like we're the most rude when we have actually no connection to the person, have you ever been in the drive-thru and somebody got your order wrong? You march and say, I ordered quadruple pickles, not triple pickles, you know? Like, and you will treat people that you have no commitment to terribly. We treat people that we have no lasting commitment terribly. Or a hotel room, or rental car. If I'm in a rental car, I'm like, I've always wanted to jump a car. Let's find some speed bumps. Like, I just like, I, you know, come on. I'm just saying what you're thinking. Like a hotel room. That thing is trash. You're like, I feel sad for the cleaning company now. Like after what you do for three days in a place that you'll never be back in again. And maybe sometimes we feel that God is rude with us because we actually secretly believe that God's not in it for the long haul. The best marriages in the world that I've ever seen, they have one single attribute to all of them. And you know what it is? There's no rudeness in that marriage. I mean, you can be committed to anything. I mean, commitment's basically like, I gotta survive. Commitment doesn't actually mean love. It just means like, I just need to last longer. 
but did not have, don't misunderstand me. <laughs> Funny clips, right? But there's, there's a beautiful thing in the, the marriages that I've seen that have gone the distance, gone to actual death. Because, I mean, you get up on stage, and, and I was in a, in a wedding where it's like, as both as we both shall love, you know? You're like, well, that could be two minutes in our culture. Like, what does that even mean? But people who are in it for the long haul, in it till death do us part, they know that whatever mess they create in the relationship, they'll have to live with. When you are fully committed eternally in a marriage, you're like, I, this sucks, but I don't want this to last any longer than it needs to, and I want to clean it up. And I'll see marriages that are rude to each other, and it's like this, this cancer. It's like, oh, it just, it makes everybody feel terrible. It makes everybody, like, resent the commitment. The way that you resent your spouse will be through rudeness. But there's an element to our faith that we know that God will never speak in a rude manner to us. He will never do anything to us that is unkind. And all these attributes, why? Is because he has us forever. (laughs) He is personally interested in making sure that he maintains your heart because that's what he gets. Let me ask the band to come up. We're going to close with this. God is all about intimacy with the heart. That's what this whole entire series is about. It's about, can we get down to what exactly the heart is that we're connecting with? And and this is almost like a, a topic of what is it not? Because sometimes we're so familiar with what it is not. We're so familiar with the bad things that we believe about God's heart. It's really hard to get to the real heart of God. And that's why this is, this is challenging. But let me just summarize tonight in this. I always like to think about these attributes of God's heart and I, I try and think of like, would, would I be in a relationship with somebody that does these things or says these things or behaves this way? Like the God that we've made and we've told people about, like we would not be, we, we would like hide in the hallway. Like when we see them coming, we're like on our phone pretending to be on the phone. Like have you ever done that for somebody you want to talk to? Like we would not tolerate these attributes. But let me just Go back to tone real quick. You will never talk to somebody who speaks to you in return with a tone that degrades or diminishes you. Why would you do that? Conversation is required for intimacy. If if every response you get back from God is rude, condescending, and diminishing, you won't even have a conversation with that person. The tone in which we hear God is so vital for us to even having conversation with him. What tone do you hear? How about the unfinished nature of God's heart about how he sees us? You will never feel celebrated and admired with someone who only sees you as unfinished, incomplete, needing work. Why? Because it's disrespectful. You will not ever be in a relationship with somebody you feel completely disrespected all the time. You will not share the victories of your life because it's never good enough for them. And maybe some of us need permission to actually celebrate our victories in God, but we we refuse it because we don't feel that it is good enough for God. Covered. Does God cover you? You will never give the most intimate details of your heart if you are worried they're about to be exposed. 
Some people have the most shallow, like just, I pray that my food doesn't get cold relationship with God, you know? They pray for like the most shallow things. I really think it's, it's fear that I don't want to share too much with God because it's not in a safe place. If we're not authentically sharing everything with God, then there's got to be something wrong with our belief system because security is required for intimacy. Our intimate relationships, the common thing about them is that there's security that we know that the deepest parts of our heart are protected and secure. And finally, committed You will never invest yourself into something you know is very temporary. The only reason I survived college is because I had a date when it was going to end. I'm just like, can we get over this, you know? And I did fine in school, but you know what? My mind was always on the ending part. I gave myself to the, what was required, but there are times like, man, I wish like our relationship with God was was something we could actually fully give ourselves with because we know it never runs out. We know that it's just an investment. Every area that you invest in your life in God is an investment. It doesn't trail off. It doesn't expire. It stores up for you. And it builds depth for your relationship with God because he's committed forever. Even though that we do a crummy job sometimes, he is fully committed always, all the time. Amen?